Playhouse Bible Church today. Let's begin by praying together. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to once again praise you. We're in awe of you. We're in awe of who you are and all of your attributes. Father, we thank you for the fact, most of all, that you're gracious. And that just means that, that your justice has been satisfied through the death of your son. And so you are showering grace on members of his body. And we just praise you for that and thank you for that. You also, Father, especially want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the fact that he was willing and you allowed him to go to the cross to die for our sins, and you raised him from the dead. So we know he's God in the flesh, and we know everything he said about everything is true, and we just thank you that salvation is so easy and straightforward for us, which is simply a matter of faith in Christ, believing in the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning, Father, we gather together as a family in the name of your Son, and we would just ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction today. Father, we also want to pray for the persecuted church around the world. We want to pray for, especially this morning, Father, the church in Pakistan. We would just pray for your your protection and comfort and encouragement for them as well as all persecuted Christians in the world. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Oh, Aaron, you didn't mean me, did you, when you said you may be seated? Darn, I was kind of comfortable back there. (laughs) Ah. Welcome again, everybody, to to Lighthouse Bible Church. As many of you know, we uh, feature a different missionary organization each month, and this month... We are supporting and featuring Grace Bible Church, Pakistan. Their direct mission is to serve a flock of Christians in Arafwala, Pakistan. And uh, remember that we are particularly praying for their safety of this congregation as well as their property during the current conflict between Pakistan and India. We pray that that be over, but at the same time, Father, we pray for their safety and protection. At the end of service today, we are going to play a video for you, which uh, is by Voice of the Martyrs, and it features... Fazl John in this ministry. So that's very exciting. And uh, again, that'll be at the end of service today. So someone's got to wave to me when it's like seven after, so I don't keep you too long. But anyway, um, also please pray for, the, for Linda Koshan. I understand there's better news there, but we please keep, keep her in prayer about her husband and her father. And of course, prayers also continue for the Pomeroy family today as uh, they're continuing to have to deal with um, their grief and the other matters pertaining to the death of Ron. So we keep, please keep that family in prayer. Uh, one reminder um, as we get started today, and uh, oh, by the way, that's their website, um, just in case you want to check them out. The, uh, we have a prayer request that we encourage you to uh, submit. You can do them. There's a box in the foyer if you want to do it that way and write it out, and people do that. But also on our website, we have a button. I know that's not a technical word, but that's the word I use. A button on the homepage that you can click, and you can type in your prayer request that way. So either way, we do encourage that. In our prayer meetings on Thursday evenings, um, we pray for the folks and, and the things that you ask us to pray for. So please... Uh, Don't be shy about doing that as the need arises. All right, well, we have started now in the first letter to the Colossians. The title of today's message is Board of Elders, A.D. 54, Corinth. We'll see more what that's about this morning. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, sorry, we're going to end at 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 
As difficult as this letter is, because it is a letter primarily of rebuke, it's also a letter of great comfort and encouragement. Even in the rebuke, you know, didn't, didn't David in, in Psalm 23 say, Thy rod and thy staff, like, you comfort me. The rod comforts us, if we would but understand what it's all about. That the Father is disciplining us at times, is because he wants something for us, that we won't get there without being disciplined. And, but also there's a message today when we get to it about basically who we are and, and how God sees us as, as bad as we think we are at times. And oh, by the way, we are. It's called the flesh. But, he, but despite all of that, the love that God has for us. And this is a message that is delivered right at the beginning of this letter. So let's start. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we get started today, I want you to notice how Paul describes the people to whom he is writing. Notice, first, they've already been sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus. They're called saints. Saints. Quite simply then, he is writing to the believers in Corinth. The believers. And I have to say, by the way, that that doesn't mean every person who assembles is a believer. Right? We, that's not, in other words, he's not writing to anybody who's in the seats, but he's writing to the believers. That's important. Uh, for example, in chapter 5, he will call somebody a so-called brother. That's a little sarcastic. What is that saying? It's expressing doubt as to whether or not that particular person is a believer. But he is writing this letter to the saints. And, and one of the things we need to understand is that throughout the letter, when, when Paul says you, he's referring to the saints. So, Paul's letter is for the saints. There may be goats, but there's sheep, more sheep, and he's writing to the sheep. All right? Just to get that picture straight. All right, let's look at verse 4. Colossians, I'm so used to saying Colossians, I've got to get that out of my system now. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus so that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ, the gospel was confirmed in you. Notice all of these statements that say these people are saved, and by the way, they've been, they've been in the truth for a while now. As we saw last week, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. A year and a half, that's a long time. He didn't spend any time in Colossae. He spent a short period of time, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians. Never went to Rome. At that time, he wrote the letter of Romans. So here, he spent a year and a half. That's almost as much as Ephesus, where he spent three years. Might be interesting to contrast those two letters, wouldn't it? Those of you that know something about the letter to the Ephesians, it's very different from this one. All right, we're going to see more of that. But in any event, notice all the statements that say, I am writing to believers in Christ. He says, the grace of God in the past was given to you. 
When? When you became a believer in Christ. You were enriched in Him. This is the teaching that they've already learned in all speech and all knowledge, the gifts that have been given by the Spirit to this church. Even as the testimony concerning Christ, the Gospel, was confirmed in you. That means not only did you believe it, but then it was confirmed later on, meaning that you were starting to live in the truth of it, and you knew the Gospel, so that you were not lacking in any gift. Notice this. Awaiting eagerly what? The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the rapture of the church. So who is it that awaits eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ? Believers, right? The world isn't. The believers are. So again and again, at the very beginning, he is going out of his way to say, you folks are believers in Christ. You are eagerly awaiting the rapture. And when that happens, the Lord will confirm you to the end. By the way, that, that just gets rid of the lie that you can lose your salvation. Because believe me, when we get into this letter a little more, you're going to see exactly what the situation is with these people. And it's ugly. It's not good. And yet, right off the bat, he says, listen, the Lord is going to confirm. I mean, he's looking at, we'll see this today. He's looking at people that are want, wanting to like just break off their marriages. There's somebody involved in incest. I'm not kidding. Prostitution. All these things, idol worship, all this stuff is going on. And he gets to the very beginning, before he gets into any of that, he says, you, I know you're eagerly awaiting the rapture, and believe me, he's going to confirm you to the end. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a statement, what a bold statement to make. And, and we should take that to heart. And we'll see more of that in a minute. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful. See, that's the key. All right? The key to this is, well, how could Paul possibly have the audacity to say that these people who are flagrantly sinning all over the place are going to be confirmed to the end? That actually, while they're not now, they will be blameless when the Lord comes back in the rapture. Believe you me, it's not for anything that he saw in the behavior of those people. It's not anything that he looks at in us and our behavior and says, okay, that one I'll confirm to the end. No, what is it? Verse 9, God is faithful. We are faithless. God is faithful. Now, now, we're not always faithless, but there's times when we sort of, sort of push away. We know the Lord's direction is for us, and we just kind of hanker on down with our flesh for a while. So, but God is faithful through all of that. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And notice that we were called, they were called, into fellowship with His Son. Is there anything more glorious than that? As a matter of fact, we're in Him and He's in us forever. So given all of that, clearly these were believers in Jesus Christ. Clearly they have a great destiny. And we need to keep that in mind as we go forward in this letter, which will be challenging and we'll see just how... (laughs) Wicked, I can't, I don't want any other word for it. The flesh really is when it's given free realm. By the way, don't get arrogant, because trust me, if there's a point at which your flesh gets, gets free realm, same thing. It'll be ugly, all right? Don't be shocked. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, all right? Your flesh is still in your body, and if you just let it go, and whatever, however, whatever that means to you, um, you indulge it, it'll be just as ugly, Maybe not exactly the same. You might not be finding yourselves in an idol's temple right away. And I don't even, actually, I don't even know where to go. Actually, I do know where to go. It's called false religion. There's, there's, there's idol's temples all over the place. 
Anyway, you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see, I hope you see clearly that in verses 4 to 9, we get more and more and more proof that he's writing to believers in Christ. We also see that they've been well taught. That they've been enriched in all knowledge. And the Lord is going to confirm them to the end, blameless at the rapture. Because God is faithful to his word and to his son. Now this is quite something. See, see, Paul emphasized all these statements. And I'm emphasizing them this morning, these statements that prove he's writing to believers. And there's one very good reason for that. You see, starting in verse 10, all right, the next verse... And continuing throughout the letter, Paul is going to launch into a series of reproofs, pointing out what's wrong, and rebukes, warning them that if they don't change, there's going to be bad consequences. Again and again and again, starting in verse 10, he's going to do this. And these things will be shocking. He's going to have some really shocking things to say about these people. In fact, I dare say these things that he will say would shock most Christians today so much that they would insist I think if you just took the description of these people, divorce it from the fact that it's in 1 Corinthians or that Paul has called them saints, and you just present their behavior, I would tell you that a large majority of Christians in the United States would insist there's no possible way they could be Christians. And yet they are. By the way, when you look at somebody's behavior and you say, there's no way he's a Christian, you know what that's called? Legalism. Legalism. That's what that's called. Yeah, Mark it down. And this is what I mean about being a comfort. Maybe not today, but someday. Sinful behavior is not an indication that a person is not saved. If it were, then he, how could he he'd be lying at the beginning? He's telling them they're going to be confirmed to the end, that they're eagerly awaiting the rapture, that they're saints by calling. If he was telling them that and they weren't saved, well, I got a problem with the Apostle Paul. Because he was lying to them. You know, and he was giving them false security. You know? Easy believism, or whatever you want to say. No, they were believers in Christ, even though their behavior was shocking. What's the conclusion for them and for us? Sinful behavior is not an indication that a person is not saved. By the way, you know what it is an indication of most of the time? That they're very, very immature. Immature. Yeah, it's not by something that you work up to say, you know what, I'm just going to be a great Christian tomorrow. No. It is, a, it is by you growing up in the Word. By you understanding, like Paul, you know what? Nothing good dwells in me. You know, the less mature you are, the less likely you are to say that. You really think that, you know what? You're hot stuff when you're first believer. You think you've learned it all and, and you're never going to sin again and all these things and all the while, you know what? The life you're actually living is still a mess. But you're not an unbeliever. You're just immature. And that's what Paul's going to say in chapter 3. He's going to say you're still fleshly. Now that doesn't mean that you pop in and out. I'm fleshly, I'm spiritual, I'm fleshly. No, it means you are fleshly. You're a believer and you're fleshly. It is a condition. It is called immaturity. How do I know that? Because he calls them something in chapter 3. Infants in Christ. Yeah. Now you don't want to be an infant in Christ, but you do want to be in Christ. Regardless, right? So, so this, this fleshliness is a sign of immaturity, not necessarily a sign you're not a believer. Again, always keep in mind, as we read through this letter, he, you that he's writing to are believers who will be blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if that isn't hopeful, I don't know what is. Okay, I don't know. I, don't, I got nothing else for you. If you if you can see that with all the things going wrong with the people in, in Corinth, that it's also the case that they one day will be blameless in the day of Christ Jesus, that the work will be completed, that He will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish them, just like He's working on you to do the same thing, regardless of you know. Oh no, here I go again. I'm so weak. I fell from my flesh. I'm angry at people at times, and sometimes I do I do stuff I know I'm not supposed to do. And there'll be plenty of legalistic people around you at that point that may be whispering in your ear and saying, you know what, are you sure you're saved? Did you, maybe you believe the gospel wrong. No, you will be, you know if you believe in the God. I mean, the gospel is so simple and straightforward, right? Isn't it? I believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sins and rose from the dead. So if you believe, the Bible says if you believe, in Christ, you will have life. Did you believe in Christ? Hopefully most of you are saying yes, if only in your hearts, none of my business. If you believed in Christ, then you have eternal life. Period. So, so, so you can always go back and realize that, not only go back, but you know, it's the kind of thing that when you wake up in the morning, if somebody were to ask you with a gun to your head, you, probably, you would hopefully still say, well, yeah, I do believe that. I mean, what, you know, this is truth. This is the most important truth of the universe. I believe it. That's all. That's me. That's the sign of a believer. And so, if you're finding in your life there are times when you're listening to the voices that say, "How can you possibly be a saint? Look what you just did. Look what you just thought." Right? Well, they're wrong. God's right. He is faithful. All right. Keep that in mind as we go through this letter. One day, these people that he's writing to will be blameless, and that day will be the day of Christ Jesus, the rapture. All right, let's go. Let's go to the last two verses that we're going to read at the beginning today. 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. Now, I exhort you, brethren. There's the last one we see in this chapter. Well, no, but in this passage, they're saying they're brethren. What is a brethren? Believer in Christ. Fellow member of the body of Christ. Brother and sister. Fellow child of the living God. Brethren, I exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. Now, here's where it gets dicey. There's nothing it guarantees that a group of believers gathered together are going to agree. Can I get an amen on that one? Right? You know. Look all around, right? I mean, we have our issues here, but if you look at it generally in the United States, my gosh, there's disagreement. It's worse than that, by the way. Not only are there disagreements, now believe me, if it's on the gospel, then fight all day. But if it's on these other things, you know, that people fight about. Um, and the, 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 the most horrible thing of all is that these guys on this side are sure that these guys are unbelievers and satanic. And then these people over here are sure that those guys are evil and satanic. I mean, that's where it gets to with division. Why? Because where's it from, after all? Did Christ, was he praying as the night before he went to the cross in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, that they may all be fighting, Father? No, that they may all be one. So that's Paul's, he's exhorting them. He's saying, listen, I want you to all agree and that there are not any divisions among you, rather that you be made complete. By the way, this is plural. He's not looking at individuals and say, you know, you, George, I want you to be complete. No, he's saying the group body is, oh, there's something going on 
in the body of Christ. You can read about it in Ephesians 4. We're being built and knit together in love. That's the complete. Okay? In, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, when he says, uh, do not be drunk with wine. The, actually, the tra- translation that I think is the right one, who am I? Well, I studied it like crazy. Um, is that you, be, that you be made complete by the Spirit. Why? Because all of Ephesians is addressed to the body. You know, we, we Americans like to pull things out and make it all about me, individual. But that's not really, really the, the audiences for these letters are the group as a whole, the body, the body, the body. We may be complete together in one body. That you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. But I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Remember we saw last week, Paul's in Ephesus. It's been over three years since he's been with the, with the saints in Corinth. He, does, has, he has some visitors, remember? He has Chloe's people. And then he has Stephanus and Achaeus and all those three other guys and so forth. And they're reporting to him what's going on here in Corinth. And that's why, that's why he says what he does. I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So again, being made complete, by the way, points back to verse 8, where Paul said they'll be confirmed by God as blameless for his work. His work. We will be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Okay, that, when he says that in Romans chapter 8, there's no if. You ever notice? Pay attention to when there is an if and when there isn't. Even when there's an if. You should beg, I want to ask a couple of questions about that. You know, I say, if, if today is Sunday, then tomorrow is Monday. Do you agree with that statement? If today is Sunday, tomorrow, then, then tomorrow is Monday. Okay, is there any lack of confidence in that statement? No, it's 100%, right? So sometimes even the ifs, you've got to say, well, you know, we've got to look at this a little more. I'm drifting, sorry. But it's a statement of fact that they will be confirmed. But at this time, there are divisions and quarrels. Boy, are there. We're going to see. <laughs> this letter, if you wanted to say, what was the one thing that was really driving Paul nuts? It's what he mentions first. That there are divisions, disagreements, and quarrels. Why? Why is that so important to Paul? Why, why, is, it, why is that more important than the fact that people are going to eating food that has been sacrificed to idols? Why are the divisions? That seems a lot worse. Why is that worse than, than people that want to split up and, and, and get another partner in marriage. Why is this quarrels? I'll tell you why. It's, it's, it shows you how I think we undervalue the importance of the body. For, for us. In other words, there's, when we are growing together as a body, when we are of one mind, then we are going to be less likely to get involved in all that other stuff. That may not sound right, but again, take off... Your individualist American hat, you know, I am a rock, I am an island, you know, it's all about the individual, I'm going to conquer the West or whatever. Take that hat off and understand what God did. Again and again and again and again and again, he, he stresses the importance of being one body, you know. being one body with the, with the word of the God dwelling richly in us, us. Why? Because that's the way we grow. And as we grow, we're less likely to be involved in the sins of the flesh. Right? Walk by means of the Spirit who unites us, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
That's why he's so concerned about quarrels and divisions. So that so there are now many of those going on. We'll see some of them. They're interesting to notice because, because when we get to the issue of the quarrels and the divisions, we're going to start to say, wow, all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians is just turned into a mirror. Because those fights and quarrels and divisions that were going on in the first century, they're going on in the 21st century. Okay, so, so let's not think, oh, well, that's them, they were bad, we're cool, let's get back to Ephesians, you know, that kind of thing. So why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, to deal with the troubling things that had been reported to him by Chloe's people and the others. He deals with those first. Again, why? Well, because you've got to get the picture now. They're in, they've brought the news directly. They're like first-hand witnesses. And it turns out that they also bring a letter. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, when I hear that there are quarrels among them and there's all these things going on, and I'm about to open the letter, am I going to like just take it at face value what's in the letter that they wrote? No. You might say, well, of course you are. They're saints. They never lie. They're beautiful. <clears throat> Wrong answer. You just lost $400. By the way, pray for Alex Trebek. He's got stage four cancer. But anyway, no, that's not the right answer. You see... You're going to pay a lot more attention to what the people are reporting to you. Okay, so that's what he does. All right, the first thing he does is deal with the troubling things that have been reported to him. And after that, answering the questions that the Corinthian assembly had posed to him in that letter. So as we saw last time, and I want to repeat this so that you get it, because I want you to understand, be able to navigate through and have confidence that when you're in different places in the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know where you are. There's two major divisions. Chapters 1 to 6. In chapters 1 to 6, Paul deals with the problems that were reported to him. I have heard that. That's an indication that it was reported to. It's been reported to me. He does that first. He does that in the first six chapters. He's dealing with problems that were reported to him. Okay. By the way, as we've already seen today, the central problem was what? Anybody remember what I said to you? Disunity, division, quarrels, rivalries, good. Yes, they're listening. (laughs) But there were, of course, other problems as well. Offshoots of this, including incest, lawsuits, and going to prostitutes. Shocking. You're trying to tell me that a man went to a massage parlor? There's no way that guy's a Christian. He's evil. He's horrible. He doesn't know Jesus. Eh, wrong answer. Because they knew Jesus. They had been trained. They were going to be blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. And yet they went to prostitutes. Shocking, isn't it? How can the pastor even talk about such things on a Sunday? Can't you leave that, the Thursday Bible study, so the one I can miss, you know, so I don't have to hear this? Ooh. There's a little rebuke right there. (laughs) Yeah, lawsuits. They were suing one another in worldly pagan courts. But the central problem was division, rivalry. Okay, that shouldn't be there. Now, in chapters 7 through 16, in other words, the rest of the letter, 1 to 6, reports had come to him dealing with those first. 7 to 16, now he opens up the letter, answers the questions that the church had asked him. That's the, that's the whole letter right there, in two parts. 
Okay. By the way, the questions, <laughs> I want you to guess, if you can, and I've said this before, you know, I get questions, sometimes by email, sometimes face-to-face. What do you think the number one subject is? Over all the years I've been a pastor, the questions I get from people. Anybody want to guess the number one? No takers? What? No? This is among the church. No. There it is. Marriage. Oh, my gosh. You know, and uh, we'll talk about this in a, in a minute or two. But the, the questions usually are from people who know the answer. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a minute. Yeah, marriage and divorce, eating food sacrificed to idols, spiritual gifts, resurrection of the church. Those are four of the biggies that they ask about. But here's the thing about them. They're not innocent questions. They're not like, oh, pastor, I'm really confused. Can you tell me whether it's okay for me to divorce my husband because I've finally met the right guy? Yeah. No, you know what it was? These questions, and Paul knew it. He sniffed it out. They were, they were seeking to justify their bad behavior by asking these questions. You see, when you let the Word of God question you, now you've got, you've got a chance, a possibility. You listen to it, and it convicts you. It'll change you. But you know what? When you question the Word of God, or the one who's teaching it, it's kind of like similar You're not interested in knowing anything. You're interested in justifying something. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying never ask me a question again. Please don't misunderstand. It's the kind of subjects. And you know what the difference is. If if it is salvation, then that's not what I'm talking about. All right? But if it's a marriage thing and you're married, then you've got to start to wonder, wait a minute, what's really going on? Well, in the case of the Corinthians, they wanted to justify bad behavior by asking questions. They already knew their behavior was wrong. Remember, they'd been well taught. (laughs) They were full of knowledge. Didn't we just read that? They were full of knowledge. So wait a minute. You're full of knowledge. You've been well taught. You understand the gospel. And you're asking me whether going to idols' temples and eating food sacrificed to idols has got an issue. Hello? You mean mean that, well, you know, are you sure it's, it's it's, it's bad to, like, sue fellow members of the body? Uh, you mean going to prostitutes? Yeah, I shouldn't do that anymore, huh? You sure? I mean, come on. They knew. They knew the answers. In reality, this is what was going on, all right? They were pushing back on Paul. Paul had already taught them that. They're pushing back on him. They're saying, nah, we don't really think so. We think you're wrong on that one, apostle or pastor. Well, you're wrong on that one. I'm going to push back on that. I'm challenging you right now and your authority. Now, why do they do that? Well, well, okay, maybe it's because they think he's a false teacher. No, I don't think so. It's because they wanted to justify their bad behavior. That's why they did it. Got real quiet. No, is that real quiet? Because let's not pretend that we've never done anything like that ourselves. You know, we ask questions and we disguise our identity to hide our sinfulness. We ask a question like this. I have this friend... Right? Yeah. Yeah, get ask for names the next time they, they do that. 
Well, you know, we're involved in some shady business deal or we're kind of, you know, toying with an affair or whatever. We want to relieve our guilt. So we ask a question, but you know what? If we're honest, it's designed to allow us to rationalize our behavior. That's the question. See, we secretly hope that the pastor will say something, even as a slip-up, that we can cling to as a loophole. Oh, okay, that's good. Then I'm okay then. That's why we ask the question. It's like the lawyer asked the question of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. He just taught him that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, who's my neighbor? He wasn't stupid. He was trying to justify himself. What he was basically saying is, I'll be good to the ones, I'll love the ones I want to love. You see, but please tell me I don't have to love those. That was, a, that was to justify his bad behavior. That wasn't, it wasn't an honest intellectual question. You know, let's, let's talk about the essence of neighborliness, Lord. No, he wanted to justify his behavior. That's why the Lord told him about the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, the Jews hated the Samaritans. That got the point across. Well, the same kind of thing was going on with the questions the Corinthians poised to Paul. So again, in chapter 7 through 16, Paul answers the questions that the church at Corinth had posed to him. I do want to point out one exception to that. There's one place in this section, chapter 7 through 16, that's not answering a question. It's in chapter 11. I'll, we'll go there in a second. In fact, you can go there now if you want. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 18. See, that's, see, 11 is between 7 and 16. I figured that out. In fact, it's pretty much in the middle, sort of. You know, Actually, it's exactly in the middle. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, it's right in the middle. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I want you to picture that for a minute. I want to picture me getting up before the Lord's Supper in the first Sunday of April and saying, I am not praising you guys today. You have not come here for the better, but for the worse. How would you feel? Would there be a little bit of maybe self-examination and introspection at that point? I hope so. You know, sometimes we read these things in the Bible and we're like passing through. You know, you get, get, to the, get to the meaty part, Paul. Well, that was the meaty part. You come, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Notice verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, what's the next two words? I hear. See, that, that's, that's one other place. When he deals with disorder in the worship service, ladies, you're not going to like it when we get to chapter 11 on that regard because he is going to call you on the order that he's established. You know, Christ is the head of the church. The man is the head of one woman. Okay? And he wants that to be um, the principle behind which we gather and worship. Okay? I know that's not popular. Please don't report me to me too, or anything like that. But he's going to have to deal with that. So he heard all that. Believe me, do you really think that they were going to write a letter to him and say, you know what? No, he had to hear that. He got to get the report, and he did. I hear the divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. And boy, did they have divisions, by the way. They split over everything they possibly could. I mean, they split over who the greatest apostle. Today it would be pastor. I got the best pastor. No, I got the best pastor. No. And he finally said to them, stop it. 
Just focus on Christ. Just make sure you're hearing the word preached. Don't get into personalities or anything like that. Women versus men, that was another big division. I want you to think, though, if you're, the, if you're Satan, hopefully you're not, hopefully it's no. But if you're Satan and you want to break up, up God, God's work among his people, what are you going to do? You're going to sow division. How are you going to do it? I'll tell you how you're going to do it. You're going to observe what it is that's the most likely fault line. And you're going to go right after it. The arrogance of thinking my pastor is better than yours. Men versus women. can exploit that all day long. Rich versus poor was another one. Jew versus Gentile. Who had the most spectacular spiritual gift? Who was liberated and who was weak in faith? And, they, and for whatever reason, they were like totally open for business for all of these cuts in the assembly. By the way, I just described to you what? If I said, you know, gender, the 1%, black versus white, now would you get it? Yeah, there was identity politics going on in the first century AD. What a shock. Yeah, nothing new. It's been going on forever. All right, please turn to 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. We were here last week. Just wanted you to set, want to set the stage for where we're going on this. But remember, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> Paul writing to Timothy. He's saying, listen. There's going to come a time in your ministry, Timothy, and in the life of the church when people are not going to listen any longer to the pure preaching of the Word of God. They're going to accumulate for themselves their own teachers that will tickle their ears. Okay, Tell them how great they are. Tell them that, you know what? Go out and live your best life now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I have a way of saying things without pointing out people, but... Yeah, in other words, he's saying the time will come when they're not interested in the word of God being preached. You know, I mean, I'll be nice. But, but there are, believe me, that I would say a huge, huge majority of Christians today, by their behavior and their choice of churches, are not interested in having the word of God preached in any depth. Just the way it is. Well, what did, so what did Paul tell Timothy? You know, Timothy, you're behind the times, buddy. You're going to get a big rock band, Timothy. You've got you to have a, like, a lot of entertainment. You know, it would be nice to have a little cafe over here, Timothy. Let people come in before you church have, and have a, have a concert and have people feel like they're going to change the world. Do all of that. Because then, you know, people start coming again. Now, what did he say? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. See, this is an issue that should be dealt with in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's how important this issue is. He says what? He says, judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Verse 2. Say it with me. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's September 12, 2001, preach the word. When things have gone back to normal these days and everyone's here, there, and everywhere and too distracted by all these things, out of season, preach the word. Why? 
See, these are the things that God's Word does when it's preached. Reprove. Point things out that are wrong. Rebuke. Warn the saints. And and remember, he just said there's a judgment coming. He used to judge the living and the dead. Warn the saints. Exhort them. In other words, encourage them. Direct them with great patience and instruction. Okay. Now, I want you to notice something. By the way, Paul says, I love how he puts it. He's started to deal with the issues there. And he says, what do you desire? It's a fair question. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you take heed to what I'm saying. Because if this stuff is still going on when I get around to visiting you, it's going to be the rod. It's going to be discipline, rebuke, consequences. He talks about some of the consequences later on that have already shown up. We'll see that. He talks about how because of their total disregard of what the body of Christ really is, the people that are together as saints, and how it's represented in the Lord's Supper, because they totally abuse that, there are people who are sick, and some people have even died. Now, I don't know about you, but that would get my attention. When, I mean, it would, and, and yet didn't, by the way. So he says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That's what's at stake. Look, the Corinthians were involved in all forms of sinful behavior for which they needed a strong rebuke. But we no, notice in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Notice the order in which these things are said. Notice that reproving and rebuking come before exhortation and instruction. Having faults pointed out and being warned about the consequences comes before being exhorted and being instructed. Oh, we don't like that. I know, I don't either, but the fact is that's, that's what I've been called to tell you about. I want you to think about that. Why? Why would reproof and rebuke come before exhorting and instruction? Why did Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Galatians, start out with, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why did he do that? Why didn't he start out with, it is for freedom that Christ sent us free? And that is a wonderful thing, I'm not really, but I'm just saying, think about it in terms of what do we want to hear versus what do we need to hear? You see, reproving and rebuking come before exhortation and instruction for like a simple reason, and it's this. You and I are not ready for instruction until we have our head on straight. I mean, I put it as simply as I could. Until we have our head on straight, we're not ready to be instructed. There are a lot of people who aren't interested in being challenged and rebuked by God's word. And all they want to do is hear something new. By the way, go to Athens if that's you. Because that's what Paul had to deal with when he went to Athens. Always looking for something new. Never coming to terms with the fact that there is a God, there is a judgment. Ah! Well, we need both. And, and if there is something going on, we need to have the, re- the rebuke first. Get that out of the way, and then we can move on to instruction with our heads on straight. Or to put it the way it's put in Ephesians, we have to put off our old man first. Then we can get our mind renewed, and then we can put on the new man. So this letter is full of rebuke, deserved to the church at Corinth for their fleshly behavior, but it's not just that. If it was just that, then join the Catholic Church. No, seriously. If 
all it is is that people showing up every week getting rebuked and yelled at and told what's wrong of them and then take the offering, that is not Christianity, my friends. You see, you have to look at the whole thing. Because after he deals with and points out the problems, he then points out the solutions. And, as, and we will see again and again, in, in Christianity, the solutions are simple. The problems are complicated. The solutions are simple. Rooted in Christ. The power of his cross and the power of his resurrection. Always the answer to whatever. Now you would say, well, he's supposed to say that. He's just a pastor. Yeah, well, I'm a pastor who's been studying the word for a bit. And I've gone through some things in life. And I've learned this is true. I already knew it was true in the Bible. But I've seen how it's true in my life. I've seen no matter what has come into my life, ultimately the solution is rooted in Christ. It's rooted furthermore in his cross and his resurrection. Everything that we are having to deal with in the area of sin is dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. So you can carve out a whole lot of the problems and difficulties that you have in life and put them at the foot of the cross. And then if you're sitting there and saying, well, how is it that I can actually live the way I understand, I'm not supposed to do those other things. But now, how am I supposed to live the way God wants me to live? Well, it's through the power of His resurrection. It's the life that He's given you to live. And that's the rest of it. In between, of course, there's learning of these things. Right? Because you can't live in them if you don't know them. But that's pretty much it. That's the solutions for the world and for us as Christians. The power of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I find it so cool. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. So amazing, really. So gracious. That side by side with Paul rebuking the saints at Corinth, Again and again and again, he teaches the most wonderful things. Right in the middle of dealing with the fact that they were making rivalries out of who has what spiritual gift. He teaches on love. The most lofty, amazing teaching on love anywhere in the Bible. And right in the middle of all these issues he's dealing with, disorder in the church and all of these things, right at the end of them, (laughs) he gives the clearest, most succinct presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's just what, what I just showed you about the solutions. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. I've I, I got to believe, because you know, I preach that every week, if you haven't noticed yet. And i got to believe there's people out there saying, I know that. You are boring me now. I can say that in my sleep. And I say, well, good. You're, you're starting to get where you need to be. Just starting. Why do I say that? Because this is the solution to everything in life. Okay, it might be the same message again and again, but it's, it's going to be available for different things you're dealing with again and again and again. So you better know it. You know, there's certain things. My son's going into the military. He's going into basic training. And you've got to believe there's going to be certain things that they're going to make him say and make him do 
over and over and over and over. And why? Because when he's out on a battlefield someday, that thing has to be there. It can't, he can't be learning the step left, right. What was it again? Hey, what was it? No, he has to know it inside and out. How does that happen? Again and again, again. And how did Michael Jordan become as good as he got? Again and again and again, right. Everybody, I talked to a world-class golfer and asked, what made you that way? Practice, practice, practice. Writing. Writing, by the way, everyone reads this finished product and say, my gosh, what a great essay. I was doing that last night. I was reading something. But here's the thing you don't know. Is that good writers, it's a craft. It's like a sculptor making a sculpture. They revise again and again and again. And what happens? It comes out, you read it effortlessly like it was from the mouth of an angel. But it wasn't. It was hard work. That's the attitude we should have for the word of God. And especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. Notice it's the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul goes back to the cross again and again. And again, as the corrective, the solution to fleshly behavior. What's the problem? All kinds of stuff. What's the solution? The cross. But people don't like that. Because you see, the cross, you have to come to terms with some things when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to come to terms with the fact that you're not born good. You have to come to terms with the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have to come to terms with the fact that still, I have flesh. Here's another thing. People, I repeat over and over and over again about the flesh. Well, hello. You're dealing with that every day of your life. And left to its own, it will overpower you. You can't think your way out of the flesh. You can't argue against the flesh. The only thing you can do is have the cross applied to the flesh. Through the power of the Spirit. That's it. So he goes back to the cross again and again as a corrective to fleshly behavior. I want you to see a couple of other places where he does that. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Back to chapter 1. The church at Corinth was a combination of Jew and Greek. It had formed out of the synagogue. It was originally mostly Jewish. But as was the case in many places that Paul went, there came a certain time where the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people in that city started to persecute him. And he he wouldn't think more highly of himself than he ought. He recognized that there was a time when you have to leave it where it is and move on. And that's what he would do. He would say, listen, that's on you. I'm going to the Gentiles. So he became both Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. Paul knew his audience. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. By the way, later on, we're going to be seeing the spiritual gifts in a while. And they were, there were people in that congregation all excited about sign gifts. What do I mean by that? Temporary gifts that were given to the early church in order to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Tongues. Knowledge. Healings, And they were all impressed with that. I'll guarantee you most of the people that were impressed with that were Jewish. Don't don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. Jews ask for signs. On the other hand, Gentiles, you're not off the hook. Greeks search for wisdom. 
You know, that's why Paul says in, in, in chapter 13, if I have all the wisdom in the world but have not love, I have nothing. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was dealing with. Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. In other words, the next time somebody wants to tell you how spiritual they are, because they can go, speaking in tongues. That probably meant something. Some, somebody's listening to this in, in, is there anything in Swahili, Bill, that I just say? I'm teasing. Okay? They think that's spiritual. But what did Paul preach? We preach Christ crucified. That's spiritual. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you see everything that Christ did through his death on the cross, now you're seeing the heart of God. Not when you're jib-jabbering or saying, I got a better spiritual gift or any of that nonsense. No, when you're just adoring Christ, what he did at the cross for you and I. All right. I, he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews who want signs. That's a stumbling block, the cross. To the Gentiles that are so wise, that's foolishness. But to those who are the called, the saints, the believers, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ. He's the power. He's the wisdom. The Jews look for powerful signs, look to Christ and His cross. The Greeks look for the wisdom, look at the wisdom of God in Christ. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. i got four minutes. People are saying, praise the Lord. No. I, I, I mean, I'm, look, I'm relaxed about that. I understand that, especially in this culture today, man, it's hard to sit and listen for 40 minutes. I get that, you know. I appreciate your, your graciousness in that and your understanding of the importance of the word that you do that. All right. And when I came to you, brethren, remind them again that they're saints, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't try to argue you into it. I didn't try to impress you into it. I didn't try to use big, fat words because you'd think, well, he must know what he's talking about. No. I determined to know nothing among you, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He kept his eyes on the prize, in other words. He didn't, you know, they want to go off in all kinds of directions. They tried kissing his butt. They tried telling him he wasn't a real apostle. All these other things going on, and he's just stuck. No, it's about Christ and him crucified. And that was first. You might say, well, how come he didn't say the resurrection first? Because he knew who he was dealing with. He knew people that were fleshly and immature, and were looking at everything except the cross of Christ. And he says, no, start here. That's where it starts. Christianity starts at the foot of the cross. Start there. I want to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The only remedy for our sinfulness is the cross. Then towards the end of the letter, ah, when he's dealt with all those things, reproved them, showed them the corrections for their, their sinful life, then he presents the resurrection as their hope. Their hope. Their great hope. Why? Because he wants to inspire them. He's pointing ultimately to the, to the rapture of the church. And he's saying, that's your destination. 
You look back at the cross, you look forward to the rapture of the church. That's where you should be every day of your life. That's where we should be every day of our life, looking back at what the cross accomplished, looking forward to the great hope of the rapture of us, this church. And then they will behave properly. Believe me, you know how it is. If you don't think dad's going to be back for like six years, man, you're going to be partying, having a great time, and looking at your calendar. Like, oh, it's now five years and 11 months and five days. We better start, you know, painting the house again. <laughs> better start cleaning up the mess we've made. Then when it's one day before, we're in our Sunday best. You know, that's just human nature. But when you understand that Jesus Christ could come tonight, it's, it, it's, that's your, your priorities change. When you really, really concentrate on that and think about it. All the things you're worried about and doing and all of that, it's going to go poof. When Christ comes, none of that's going to matter anymore. That's the power of the resurrection. All right, so that's what he does. He says, listen, I want you to go to the resurrection, so that's your hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. You can check it out. I'm gonna, i gotta keep moving. got to keep moving. Well, you can go there quickly. I'll read it with you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Actually, it's the same chapter. What am I talking about? It should be pretty straightforward. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam, all die. That's what we would be if not for the cross. So also in Christ, believers, all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Rapture. Again, look back at the cross, look forward to the rapture. Simplicity. It all fits together. Think about it. Central message Christ died for our sins, was buried, three days later was raised from the dead. Our lives now, look back to the cross, it dealt with your sinfulness, look forward to the rapture, it's your great hope. Pretty simple, right? So simple. Couldn't you explain that to a four-year-old? Maybe not, all the, maybe not all the technicalities. But listen, Christ died for you. He was raised from the dead for you. Now you just look at the cross anytime you sin, and you understand that's been dealt with there, and look forward, because someday soon Christ is going to come back in the clouds and welcome you back home with your real Father in heaven. Simple. Everything amazing is ultimately simple. Love is simple. Right? It was, uh, I forget the Russian author. And he said, basically he said, all happy families are happy in the same way. All unhappy families are happy in a different way. And that is so true. There's so, there's so many things that can make families unhappy. But there's one thing that will always make them happy, and that's loving each other. Simple. Profound things are the simplest things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Simple. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Simplicity, but astounding at the same time. I'm going to have to close there, um, because I do want to have time for the video today. I... um, as often is the case, I stopped just before the material where the title of the message came from. So we'll pick it up there next week. It'll be a good way to start, actually. I actually debated 
whether I should do this at the beginning or the end. Apparently, I should have done it at the beginning. But Oh, well. It'll be a good place to start next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just again want to just thank you for the simplicity of the message of the gospel. <coughs> that Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead three days later. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Father, as we close today, we would also ask for the help that we need from the Holy Spirit to keep these things foremost, dwelling deeply in our hearts so that they do permeate our lives, understanding that the only solution to sins and sinfulness and sin in us is the cross. And that the one hope that gives hope to every believer is the rapture. But but again, Father, when things get sticky in our daily lives, we ask for the power of the Spirit to be able to once again go back to the simple message, the simplicity of devotion to Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. (laughs) Want me to say the last stuff and then go? You're good? Okay. Hallelujah, Today in Pakistan, we Christians are second-class citizens. Though we have committed no crime, we are ostracized and banished to the lowest place in society. Often we are forced to leave our villages and our own homes. We cannot get good jobs. And we have no voice in government. What is left for us is servitude. Sewage work. And we know we will never advance.
but we have a church. A place where Christians come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. To sing His praise. To study His word. For while our country has turned its back on us, God has not. Sometimes it is not easy. The loss, the injustice. So please remember to pray for us. That we will continue to live together in fellowship. That we will continue to see the joy of the Lord in our lives. And that we will persevere in our faith no matter the cost. And please remember, we are praying for you. You know, when I was watching that, I realized how it brings into view the night and day difference. How, when you, if we were there and we were in that community and had to endure all we had to endure for 24 hours a day, six and a half days of the week, can you, can you, did you feel how amazing it was when they gathered together as one body to hear the word of God? And I hope you understand that that's why, you know, we have to do everything we can to pray for them, to support them. It's why we do every month tell you about a different missionary organization that is in places in the world where that's going on. So, so let's just keep them in prayer. Voice of the Martyrs, they have a lot of ways that you can participate. I'm not just them, but just today, because this was produced by them, where uh, you can... You can simply just get a booklet that has you praying for a different country in the world that has persecuted Christians every day. You know, prayer is powerful. I used to think that, you know, people said they're going to pray for you as an excuse for not doing anything for you. But then I grew up and understood the power of prayer. See, that's what we have that they need. That's, you know, take Fazl at his word. That's what the most important thing that we can do for him is and his people, as well as people around the world. There are some that are called. There are, every one of us is a part of it, the missionary work, the support of Christians around the world. If you can do it financially, all the better. But you, we all can pray. We all can pray. And I think it's times when we allow ourselves to see things like this where our hearts will soften even more and uh, understand the real situation of our brothers and sisters around the world and hopefully make us appreciate what we have and make us more willing to give. All right. All right, as we close today...
just want to mention that we will be having a Bible study again on Thursday, March 14th. And also realize that um, that giving is to be done freely, whether it's here or with the Pakistanis or whoever, it's to be done freely and not under coercion. Why? Because that's that's how God gives. You know, and so we should do the likewise. So keep that in mind. Um, as we close right now, if you have any questions at all about about uh, what's going on in Pakistan or the message today or anything else about the Word of God, I invite you to st- spend a minute or two with me and I'll be in the front here for a while for that purpose. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for everything. We want to thank you, Father, that we have the example of our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries in Pakistan to really put into focus what's really what's really important and to just marvel at the people's willingness there to endure all they do endure for one reason, for the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And may that inspire us to do likewise here and that may also draw us to help in prayer or in any other way to support the persecuted church around the world. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. Enjoy this great day today.